Good morning, everyone. For those who are here for the first time and don't uh, know me, my name is Roman Gonzalez, and I serve here as the assistant pastor of um, Ironworks. And it is a great blessing for me to be able to <clears throat> share uh, the word of God uh, one more time. <clears throat> Excuse me. In uh, 1905, uh, Frederick Wells, the surface manager at the Collinan uh, Mine in South Africa, found the largest gem quality rough diamond ever. It was and, it, uh, and still remains the largest rough diamond ever found in the world. <clears throat> it weighed, I'm sorry. I put a timer instead of the, I'm sorry about that. Um, it weighed 1.3695 pounds. To give you an idea, it would be uh, more or less um, the size of my fist. And as you can imagine, when it was put on sale, uh, no one could afford it. Um, and it remained unsold for two years. Who could purchase such a beautiful, large, and expensive gem? Those, uh, those luxuries are not for common people. So in 1907, the Transvaal Prime Minister, Louis Botha, suggested to buy the diamond for Edward uh, the seventh, as a gift, as a token of the loyalty and attachment of the people of the Transvaal to His Majesty's throne and person. So when he was presented to Edward, he called it the Great Start of Africa. In 1908, uh, excuse me, the stone was valued to what in 2021 would be um, at U.S. 54 million. The rough diamond was cut into nine pieces later on, the largest of them called Start of Africa One, and it is the largest clear-cut diamond in the world. The second one was called Start of Africa Two, and it is the second largest clear-cut diamond in the world. These are uh, these um, two were given as gifts for Edward VII. Because you know, these are the kinds of gifts kings received. And they used them to adorn themselves and to show their majesty. Does anyone know where these stones are today? Where are they being kept today? Anyone? <clears throat> Who said that? <laughs> yes, they are part of the crown jewels of the United Kingdom. Star of Africa one adorns the scepter of the king. Star of Africa two is mounted on the imperial sta uh, state crown. <clears throat> 
And this is the crown that obviously kings uh, bear. And they use them, right, to adorn themselves this way, to show their glory, to show their majesty, and to show their power. These are the kind of gifts that kings receive. The text we are considering today is a very polemical text. I have been wrestling with it for almost a month since the text was assigned to me. And I was like, how am I going to preach this? Uh, so I want you to know that I myself, I wrestled with it. Uh, but I hope and I pray that you will be enabled today by God's Spirit to appreciate the kind of king God is. I pray that you will be able to bow down before him and to worship him for whom he is. So I'm going to ask my brother James Carr to come forward, please, and read the text for us today. Uh, Romans 9, 1 to 16. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is the word of the Lord. He said, <clears throat> the topic we are addressing today is election. So what is election? Uh, let me give you this uh, very brief definition. In election, God chooses sovereignly to bestow his grace on some <clears throat> sinners and withhold his grace from others. So that's a short definition. And what I want us 
to do today is to consider three phases of election. In the first place, uh, we're going to be considering the doctrine of election give us encouragement. Uh, the doctrine of election, second, uh, uh, it's a matter of, uh, of God's honor, or in other words, honors God. And third, the doctrine of election highlights salvation by grace. So let us jump into our first point then. <clears throat> the doctrine of election give us encouragement. Now, some of you may be saying in your minds, how can you say that the doctrine of election is for our encouragement? Uh, so the first uh, thing that I would like to do is to ask, why is Paul addressing the doctrine of election at this point in his letter? Why is he moved to talk about this? You see, in chapter 8, Paul says that there is no one. Uh, he says a lot of things. But in Paul uh, A, he says that there is no condemn condemnation for those in Christ <clears throat> because they enjoy the supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit who assures them that they are children of God. Paul also said that they were saved, the, the, those in the Roman church, that they were saved in the hope of restoration and recreation. And he also says that God is for them so no one can be against them. And that nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate them from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus, through whom also they are more than conquerors. So chapter 8 of Romans is the great comforting chapter, chapter for struggling believers. So if Paul is, uh, or if Paul is or has been, excuse me, encouraging the church since chapter 8, why would he stop in chapter 9 and discuss election? That's the question I'm asking <clears throat> to the text. And it, seems, it would seem uh, odd that he suddenly introduced this very polemical topic. Um, so I'm asking, why is he doing that? Uh, how is election related to what he has been saying so far? So here's my answer, or what I think he is doing, or the reason why he is doing I believe he speaks of God's uh, election as a continuation of the encouragement, comfort, and assurance he wants to bring to believers in Rome. In other words, Paul is not a cold-hearted theologian who can articulate the most intricate doctrines in the systematics to just show that he knows lots of theology or to trick you. But instead, as a faithful apostle, he would teach even the most difficult doctrines so that the church can be assured and comforted. So you see, when it comes to proclaiming the whole counsel of God, that is his word, Paul is the fearless apostle. He does not play peek and choose. He does not get to decide what to teach, what to preach on. He is going to 
even preach those doctrines that are very difficult to understand. So he teaches the doctrine of election in this chapter and trust that, God, that God's people will be assured and comforted regardless of the dif- uh, difficulty and the nature of the doctrine itself. So if you have been wrestling with this, uh, you basically are joining Paul's club. So the doctrine of election in the first place brings comfort and assurance to the people of God. But how? How does the doctrine of election bring us comfort and assurance? Well, because election means that God has taken hold on you and he will never let go. That is the first uh, way in which election brings comfort. God has taken hold on you and he will never let go, as Godfrey puts it. In other words, he has committed to being your God and has chosen you in Christ to be adopted as his son. He has resolved to love you for the sake of his beloved son with with matchless, unchanging, everlasting, and unbreakable love. Election means that God has placed everything necessary for your salvation. Your salvation is secure from the beginning, even from eternity. It is like if there is a wealthy man that comes to you and says, I have put in a bank account for you all the money and all the possessions that I own so that you can now use it for whatever you want to use it. And you know, he, God, has even given you his son, Jesus. God has put everything he has, even his own son. And God's, uh, so God's uh, act of electing a people for himself guarantees that you will be kept saved until the end because he has promised it and his promises never fail. So that's the first point uh, of my sermon today. My second point is that the doctrine of election brings God's honor or uh, uh, brings honor to God. So you see, after Paul have said, uh, have said that God loves them uh, with incomparable and unique love, some in the church still question the truthfulness and the veracity of Paul's statements. And we can almost hear someone saying, does God really love us? Does God really, really love us? Well, how can you be so sure that God will not turn his back on his church? But why would they ask such questions? Well, some people in the church in Rome uh, think, that has, uh, think that God has not been faithful to his people Israel because they have been 
rejected. They don't believe in the promised Messiah. So they are asking, how can you assure the church in Rome that God loves them and that he will not do the same as he did with his people, Israel? So the great Apostle Paul embarks on defending God's honor against those who may think God is too weak to keep his word. That is why the text says in verse uh, 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, central to the discussion of God's election is the integrity, the veracity, and the, eff- and the efficacy of God's word. God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. Now, how is Paul going to defend the honor of God's word? Well, he does it by giving an exposition of the true meaning and the true intention of the Abrahamic promise. That's the way he's going to defend the honor of God, by giving a true meaning and true intention of the Abrahamic promise. And he demonstrates that the promise has been fulfilled just as God said. You know, attorneys are expert people who do the work of interpreting the law, right? And whenever you get in trouble, you know, the better attorney you have, the better defense you will have in your case. And we have seen that in Romans at the beginning, Paul was acting as God's attorney on favor of God, basically. And And he is bringing charges at the beginning of Romans against the whole humanity. But in this chapter, Paul is on God's side. And he is going to defend the honor of his word. And he does it by explaining that the promise, as I said, was not intended for the physical descendants of Abraham, but for all those who, like Isaac, were sons of the promise. The real children of Abraham, to whom the promise was given, are those who are born by divine, supernatural uh, generation. This is the same as to say, like in the words of John the Gospel, the Gospel of John, you must be born again. So Paul is explaining and saying, you have, he's saying to these people in the church of Rome, you have misunderstood the whole point and intention of the promise of the Gospel. The whole story of Israel was about this, and you haven't understood it. That is, that the real children of Abraham are those like Galatians says, who have faith like Abraham did. So by explaining the true nature of the sons of Abraham, Paul vindicates the honor, the veracity, and the integrity of the word of God. So in this sense, election is a matter of God's 
honor. Election brings honor to God. Now, my third point <clears throat> is that the doctrine of election highlights salvation by grace. The doctrine of election highlights salvation by grace. Now look with me in verse 11, what it says. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Do you notice what Paul is doing here? Paul is, in this case, is not comparing works with grace. I'm going to read the, the text again for you and, and, and see if you can uh, see it. Verse 11 says, In order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul is comparing works not with grace, but with God himself. This is quite relevant to his discussion. He is not comparing works with grace. He is comparing works with who God is. And that is very, very um, important for his discussion why? Because what he is saying, in other words, is that election is a God-centered activity that at the same time has God himself as the highest goal of it. Election, let me say it again for you, is a God-centered activity that at the same time God has God himself as the highest goal of it. In other words, the ultimate goal in election is not man's salvation. And this might be heartbreaking for us because we love to be the center of the universe. But we are not. The ultimate goal, uh, goal in election is not man's salvation. The ultimate goal in election is the exaltation, the contemplation, the beholding of God's glorious self. God elects because he wants to glorify himself. That means that when God looks outside himself, because he wants to glorify himself, because he wants to love himself, because he wants to honor himself, no finding anyone else out there most worthy of the most perfect honor and love and reverence he turns to himself, and he loves himself as the most perfect way he could do it. And in election, God is loving himself. 
with the most perfect and unspeakable love. Because he has the right to do so because he is God. There is no one, there is nothing out there, no one outside himself, most beautiful, worthy, powerful than him. So that's the ultimate goal of election. Now, I think that verses 11 and 15 should be read uh, together because I think that verse 15 actually completes the idea of verse 11. Verse 11 says, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So who is this who called? We I just try to explain that. And then verse 15 says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion in other words, the God who elects a people for himself is a merciful and compassionate God. And you may be thinking, I can see that. I can see that that is truth. If you are wrestling with that, you are not the only one. But I will, I will encourage you to keep coming to God. Even when you are still wrestling with that profound and biblical truth. So when God elects, he does it out of mercy and compassion. And to explain this, Paul uses the story of Isaac and Ishmael in the first place, and then the story of Jacob and Esau. And the thing is that, you know, one could say, Ishmael was not chosen, chosen because when Isaac was born, he was already around 10 years old. So he had some time, some ch chances to sin. So when Isaac was born, Ishmael was already a full developed sinner. So that's why God didn't choose him, but he chose Isaac. Moreover, Ishmael, his mother, was a Gentile. So that must be the reason why God didn't choose him. But Paul is going to give another example using Isaac, I'm sorry, Jacob and Isaac. And those arguments are going to fall apart. Because with this last example, that does not work. Both of them were born almost at the same time. So one didn't have more chance to sin than the other one. Just seconds, I guess. And the two of them were sons of the same mother and the same father. So in that sense, because they were twins, they have no reason, or in this case, um, Jacob has no uh, reason to boast. Paul says, no, 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 Jacob and, and, and Isaac had the same mother, Rebekah, and the same father, Isaac, but he was chosen, and the other was not. 
So in this way, Paul shows that God's act of election is not conditioned by how good or how bad a person, a man can be. It does not depend on your pedigree either. But it's based on the fact that he is free to choose whoever he wants to choose. And whenever he chooses, he does it out of his mercy and his love. Have you been wrestling with this? I, I, I know that this is a very sensitive topic. There was a, <laughs> a moment when I almost um, told Sam, please give me another text. <laughs> because even for my own family, this is a, a very sensitive topic. But I would like now to call your attention to a more profound reality taking place in Romans 9. And this is a more profound reality that is taking place in the life of the Roman church as the backdrop of this discussion on God's election. And this reality is the reality of the church of God, of the people of God, of the Israel of God. The Westminster Confession of Faith, faith defines the church the following way. The Catholic Church or Universal Church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, under Christ the head of it. That's the definition of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I'm sure all of you Presbyterians, you know it by memory, right? So what chapter is this? Now, allow me to give you a shorter definition of what the church is. And this is my own definition, and I hope that you will agree with this definition. The church, so this is my definition, the church is the Father's loving gift to the song by the Spirit. Let me say it again. The church is the Father's loving gift to the song by the Spirit. And here is how Jesus puts it in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me. You hear that? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever, or all that the Father gives me will come to me. To me. Here is Jesus himself saying that the Father gives a people to the Son. The Father gives a people to the Son, and the scribe, and he, John describes the Father as the one doing the act of giving. 
and the son doing the act of receiving a people for himself. In other words, the church exists because the father in eternity loved the son so much that he gave him a people as a sign of his love for him. I hope you see it. Do you see it? If you are trusting today and believing in Christ today, you are that gift that the Father has given to the Son. You are that beautiful diamond, costly, that no one else can afford but the Son. He has given you the Father and has delivered you into His hands as a precious gem to adorn the crown that the King of Kings bears because He is worthy. You know, King Jesus is the true Son of the Promise. He is actually the son of the woman who was promised not only to Sarah, but before that, to Eve in the garden. He is the true son of Abraham, the true Isaac, the true Jacob. He is the true recipient of the Abrahamic promise. Listen to what Galatians 3.16 says. Now the promise were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say and his offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. And then Paul interprets who this offspring is. And he says, who is Christ. He is the true son of Abraham. And then in the history of redemption to King David, it was revealed that Abraham's offspring would be a king. So King Jesus today is robed in majesty as a sovereign king who led himself to be adorned with his church. And if you are in him, you are also a son of the promised. And him sitting at the table now, he invites you to come and sit and eat and partake with the King of Kings of his meal. Please stand.